Hello and welcome to episode two of the Bigger Government podcast. I'm Mark Robinson, author of the book Bigger Government, The Future of Government Expenditure in Advanced Economies. In the book, I show that government expenditure is set to increase considerably over coming decades due to powerful external forces and pressures. In the last episode, we looked at the impact that these forces will have on healthcare spending. In this episode, we turn our attention to the other main areas of spending pressure, global warming, demographic ageing and infrastructure deficits. I'm going to set out the reasons why all advanced economies will experience large and sustained increases in spending in these areas due to pressures which no government will be able to resist, irrespective of its political complexion. Collectively, these three areas will add at least 3% of GDP to government spending in most countries. At the end of the episode, I'm also going to talk about the very difficult choices which will confront governments and societies in responding to these powerful spending pressures. We're in the middle of a climate change catastrophe and only a small cabal of tin hat wearing climate change deniers believe otherwise. The gentleman from the Irish Times newspaper is clearly right. Global warming is indeed the most serious challenge facing humanity today. Opinion polls indicate that in every advanced country, a large and rapidly growing percentage of voters take the issue very seriously. What this means is that Political pressure will eventually become so great that governments of all political colours will feel compelled to show that they're taking bold action. Government spending is going to be a large part of their response. The question is how much spending? Well, the analysis in my book suggests that it's going to be a lot. Concretely, governments are likely to spend more than 1% of GDP annually on average over the next 30 years. Unfortunately, this is in fact considerably more than they would need to spend if they tackled global warming in the most cost-effective manner. The problem is that for entirely political reasons, governments are going to rely far too much on spending programs and too little on alternative methods of tackling the challenge. It's clear that we're going to need a truly massive climate investment effort over the coming three decades. Much of the investment required will be to decarbonise the economy. But we're also going to need considerable adaptation investment. This includes investment aimed at ensuring that buildings, roads and other infrastructure can cope with high temperatures. The big question is how much of the total climate investment effort will be paid for by government. Now, governments certainly need to pay for all of the spending which relates to public infrastructure and services. This includes the cost of expanding public transport, cutting the carbon footprint of public buildings, as well as reinforcing roads, coastal defences and other public infrastructure. But what about the private sector climate investment effort? In other words, the investments that households and businesses need to undertake, such as insulating houses and factories, shifting manufacturing to green energy sources and moving to electric vehicles. Is this something that government should pay for? 
The answer in principle is no. Businesses and households should, generally speaking, pay for this themselves. What governments should be doing is to use a mix of carbon taxes and regulation to motivate the private sector to do what's needed. Virtually every economist agrees that carbon taxes are a powerful and cost-effective instrument. They create strong incentives for the private sector to make the shift. Of course, carbon taxes already exist in many countries, but they are currently much too low and would need to be increased greatly in order to have the impact required to move us to net zero. Well, that's what governments should do. What they will do is a very different matter, because unfortunately it's become increasingly clear that high carbon taxes are nothing short of politically toxic. Labor has been burnt over the last 10 years on the issue of climate change policies and particularly what was called the carbon tax. So Labor are very wary of getting really tossed out uh, this election as they did in 2013 over what was called carbon tax. That was an Australian political commentator talking about the politics of the carbon tax in the context of the 2019 national election in that country, an election which, incidentally, the left-of-centre Labor Party ended up losing, partly because of voter sensitivity on the carbon tax issue. It's been a similar story in other advanced countries in recent years. Parties and governments which have sought to increase carbon taxes have either been forced to back down or have been defeated in elections. France is one. It's no longer delayed, it just won't happen. In the face of increasingly violent protests, French President Emmanuel Macron's government has scrapped a planned hike on fuel taxes. The decision coming just a day after announcing a six-month suspension of the measure. The rise was originally to take effect next month. The surprise move came just as French lawmakers voted to approve a series of measures proposed by the government to placate the so-called Yellow Vest protesters. To the yellow vests and to all the French people, when I say that the government is open to dialogue with the support of the majority in Parliament, I mean it, because the planned rise in fuel taxes has now been removed from our budget for next year. That was back in 2019, at the height of the Gilets Jaunes protests which rocked France. What this tells us is that Raising carbon taxes to the high levels which would be needed to achieve net zero is politically impossible in most advanced countries. It's worth reminding ourselves here that opposition to high carbon taxes doesn't come only from the political right. Incredibly, it also comes from much of the environmentalist left. So what's going to happen is that governments will want to be seen to be aggressively tackling global warming but without big increases in carbon taxes. To do this, they're going to end up relying much more than they should on subsidies to induce businesses and households to undertake their part of the climate investment effort. This means that we're going to see more and more government grants for green energy production, for the purchase of electric vehicles, for insulation measures, and so on and so forth. These types of subsidies are at the core of the Green New Deal programs currently being put forward in many countries, including the European Commission's recent 1 trillion euro Green New Deal plan. This is going to cost a lot. 
and it's going to greatly increase government expenditure on climate change. Of course, governments will also make extensive use of regulation, and within limits, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But let's go back to the politics of all of this. I said at the beginning that governments everywhere are going to come under irresistible pressure to address global warming seriously. This is very clear in Europe. These days, climate change deniers have very little political influence in advanced European nations. What's interesting is that there are already clear signs that this same shift is underway even in the US Republican Party, which must qualify as the most irrational mainstream political party in the advanced world on this issue. The generational shift in Republican leaders is personified by 37-year-old Florida Congressman Carlos Curbelo. He voted with the party to repeal the Affordable Care Act, but he's bucking the party leadership on climate change. The political momentum for Republican solutions to climate change is overlapping with another reality, shifting public opinion. A national survey by Yale and George Mason Universities last December found half of Trump voters think global warming is happening. Six in ten Trump voters supported taxing or regulating the pollution causing it. The thing is, the adverse consequences of climate change are becoming more obvious and undeniable by the day. Given this reality, there will be fewer and fewer voters prepared in the coming years to buy the story that this has got nothing to do with fossil fuels. Even in the US, the politics of climate change are going to shift much more rapidly than many people expect. Let's turn now to the issue of demographics. By 2050, it's projected that around a quarter of the population of advanced countries will be in the plus 65 age bracket. The number of people in the very elderly age bracket, that is over the age of 80, will have doubled to around 10% of the population. And this is going to have a big impact on public spending. It's actually going to have a big impact despite the fact that and we discussed this in the last episode, health spending is nowhere near as sensitive to population ageing as is widely imagined. The reason that ageing is going to impact so much on government spending is the way it is going to affect long-term care and age pension spending. Long-term care is going to be the area where the pressure is most universally felt on government budgets. It's clear that government spending on long-term care will rise by at least 1% of GDP in all advanced countries and probably by considerably more than that in many countries. But before going into that, what about age pensions? Rising spending on age pensions has been one of the biggest sources of pressure on government budgets over past decades. And this pressure is going to continue for at least the next decade or two, just about everywhere. But over the time horizon to the middle of the century, the story becomes a bit more varied. Certainly there are many countries where pension spending will be higher in 2050 than it is today. One of these is the United States, where official projections show a spending increase of a full 1% of GDP. 
On the other hand, however, there are other advanced countries where pension spending is projected to be broadly the same or even less than it is today. And that is partly because of the delayed impact of past pension reforms, such as increases in the retirement age. Long-term care is a very different story. Here the picture is much more uniform. Spending is going to keep on rising substantially everywhere. Uh, And this isn't only because the population is ageing. It's because existing aged care policies are politically untenable and will certainly change. Well, meanwhile, the aged care industry has warned the federal government that a major investment in the sector is needed to avoid a crisis in accommodation and care for the elderly. The Aged Care Association of Australia says the sector must double in size by 2030 to cope with the ageing baby boomer population. Tonight, the association said that $51 billion will be needed over the next 20 years to fund new facilities and services. The under-provision and poor quality of aged care has already become a major political issue in many countries. I can't tell you the number of people that have told me they've given up everything. They've sold cars, they've sold property, they've sold uh, furniture, they've sold things that they otherwise would have kept just to pay for their parents' care. Former Democratic Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle says the problem of long-term care is becoming a national crisis. The biggest problem is the rapidly growing number of people who need extended periods of residential care because they suffer from dementia or other serious disabilities. In countries where the government shirks its responsibility, such care is completely unaffordable for many, and others are obliged to sell their homes to pay for it. With the growing voting power of the elderly, the political pressure on governments to step up will become increasingly irresistible. That's what happened in Japan more than a decade ago, leading to major reform which expanded the role of government in the provision of care. And it's what's happening right now in a number of other advanced countries, including France and the United Kingdom. In England, for example... Even the Conservative government has been obliged to shift ground dramatically on this issue and to accept that it will have to spend substantially more on long-term care provision in coming years. We think that nobody should uh, pay for their cost of their social care by selling their home and everybody should have dignity and security in their old age. That was Prime Minister Boris Johnson during the 2019 British elections making quite sure that his party was not electorally vulnerable on this sensitive issue. Even in the US, political parties are starting to shift ground on this issue, reflecting the formidable and growing voting power of the elderly, which is, of course, something upon which the Republican Party is particularly dependent. What this tells us is that, irrespective of the political parties in office, Governments are going to spend significantly more in coming decades on long-term care in all advanced countries. This brings us to infrastructure. In a number of advanced countries, chronic underinvestment in infrastructure 
has brought matters to the point of crisis. Road closures and speed restrictions, rail accidents and bridge collapses are amongst the manifestations of this crisis. Airports overloaded and outdated, roadways overburdened and buckling, power grids, parks, schools, broadband service, public transit and water systems. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, which grades all those categories, the aging infrastructure has been crumbling for years, slowing travel, stifling business, endangering Americans. The U.S. isn't alone. The United Kingdom, Germany and France are amongst the other countries with major infrastructure deficits. Take the example of German railways. One example of German underinvestment is the country's aging rail infrastructure. In 2019, several reports denounced a huge rail infrastructure replacement backlog and highlighted the need to invest close to 50 billion euros in the sector. This situation is the consequence of decades of underinvestment and inadequate maintenance. In the countries which face this problem, there's now enormous pressure for catch-up action. Really, the time has come now. There's this tipping point right now that is saying, we are not going to be able to survive with this infrastructure. Everything from the roads, the bridges, to the ports. The infrastructure deficit was a major issue in the 2017 US presidential election. Ultimately, very little was done about the problem because of the unwillingness of the Congressional Republican Party to commit serious resources to make up for past neglect. But the pressure will continue to grow until effective action is taken. That's exactly what's happened in the United Kingdom, where years of austerity led to appalling neglect of public transport and much other infrastructure. By the time of the 2019 national election, the British public was completely fed up with the state of affairs, so much so that Conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson felt obliged to make commitments to big infrastructure spending a central element of his campaign platform. We're also going to do fantastic things for this country with infrastructure, with uniting the whole country, with, with better high-speed rail, uh, with telecommunications. Uh, we're going to do fantastic things for this country. Now, it's true that not every advanced country finds itself in this position. But in the many which do, there can be little doubt that infrastructure spending will increase substantially over the coming decades, further adding to the upward pressure on total government spending. And this spending will be in addition to climate-related infrastructure investment, which all advanced countries will need to undertake. We've looked at the powerful spending pressures which governments will face over coming decades in healthcare climate change, long-term care, age pensions and infrastructure. In most advanced countries, these will add more than 7% of GDP in extra spending by the year 2050. The increase in spending won't be gradual. It will, in fact, be heavily front-loaded. Healthcare spending, for example, will be markedly higher in the wake of the pandemic than it was before. One reason will be the need for us to be better prepared to face similar health emergencies in future. The other will be the pressure to address the grave weaknesses in public hospital systems, which are the result of years of underfunding. Climate change-related spending will also need to be ramped up 
quickly because of the scale of the crisis facing humanity. And finally, increases in age pension spending will be heavily concentrated over the next two decades due to the baby boomer effect. Spending pressures of this magnitude will put governments in an extremely difficult position. It's politically inconceivable that governments could simply raise taxes to the extent required to fund all of the extra spending. Raising taxes is particularly difficult in countries such as France and Denmark, where tax levels are already high. It's also pure wishful thinking to believe that governments could simply run large deficits and finance them from money creation or large-scale borrowing. Anyone telling you to the contrary is kidding themselves, and that includes advocates of so-called modern monetary theory. So there's going to be huge pressure to make offsetting spending cuts elsewhere. This makes the question of the scope for such offsetting cuts a very important issue in the future of public finances. Before considering the issue of offsetting spending cuts, we need to talk about one possible external force impacting on government budgets, which is missing from our list, and that's technological mass unemployment. There are many people who are convinced that artificial intelligence and other technological advances point to a future in which a large part of the workforce will be structurally unemployed. One of them is Elon Musk. There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. Now, if this turned out to be true, it would create irresistible pressure for very large increases in government income support expenditure. In fact, the fear of technological unemployment is the main reason why there is widespread support today for a so-called universal basic income, which would be enormously expensive. What is the solution to combat millions of jobs being destroyed by technological unemployment? The universal income. Universal income is a periodic cash payment delivered to all on individual basis, without means test or work requirement. My book, Bigger Government, looks in detail at these arguments. It says that predictions of mass technological unemployment are founded on wildly exaggerated notions of the impact that artificial intelligence and other technological advances are going to have on employment. This is because they greatly overestimate both the pace of progress in AI development and the potential capabilities of robots and other technology. The people who really know this field, that is leading AI experts, tend to take a much more sober view of its prospects. The fact is that there will continue to be plenty of things which only humans can do, or which they can do much better than robots. This is, by the way, something that Mr. Musk found out the hard way when he tried to fully robotize his Tesla factory in California, which was an embarrassing failure. So humans will work with the new technology rather than simply being replaced by it. We've heard these doomsday predictions before, and they've consistently been proven to be wrong. Back in the early 1990s, for example, gurus like Jeremy Rifkin were predicting imminent 
mass unemployment as a result of the IT revolution. Well, it didn't work out that way. Sure, future technological progress will require a workforce that is better educated and trained than ever. And that means that countries which fail to spend adequately on equipping their workers are indeed going to experience growing structural unemployment. But there's nothing inevitable about this, nor is it very different to the way that things have worked in the past. You know, there are a lot of myths about modern labour markets which are used to bolster the case for a universal basic income. One of them is the claim that there has been long-term growth in so-called precarious work. Bigger government looks closely at labour market statistics and other evidence and finds that this is entirely false. There is no basis for claims that a UBI will be essential because the workforce will in future be comprised largely of precarious and freelance workers. A UBI is both unnecessary and completely unaffordable. There is no way that it could be financed given the magnitude of the real spending pressures which governments are going to face over coming decades in healthcare, climate change and other areas. The sheer size of the spending pressures which they face over coming decades means that governments are going to find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Basically, they'll be faced with two unattractive options. The first is big increases in taxes. The second is large offsetting cuts in spending elsewhere. Different countries will make different choices and only time will tell what those choices might be. But there's one thing we shouldn't kid ourselves about, and that's the proposition that most of the pressure on government budgets could be relieved simply by cutting waste and improving efficiency. There are, of course, those who claim that government is so monstrously inefficient that a large percentage of spending could be cut without making anyone worse off simply by improving efficiency. The book examines such claims closely and demonstrates that they are without foundation. Sure, improving efficiency on a continuing basis is very important, but efficiency savings can only make a marginal contribution to dealing with the fiscal challenge. The final chapter in the book looks at some of the challenges which face governments in either increasing taxes or making offsetting spending cuts. It's worth mentioning a couple of the key points which emerge from the analysis. First, with respect to taxes, it would be quite wrong to think that the additional tax revenue which would be needed could be raised exclusively by imposing higher taxes on the rich. If the tax route is chosen, just about everyone will need to pay higher taxes. In the United States, for example, there would need to be a broad-based value-added tax. Secondly, the scope for offsetting spending cuts is limited by the fact that spending has already been cut to the bone over recent decades in quite a few areas of government services. Thirdly, there will be considerable ongoing pressure for further cuts in welfare spending in those advanced countries with the most developed welfare states, such as France and Denmark. 
This is despite the fact that welfare benefits have already been significantly pruned over past decades. Fourthly, the American welfare state is so woefully inadequate that there is no scope for large welfare spending cuts in that country without causing enormous additional suffering to the poor and disadvantaged. Given the generally low level of public services in the US, the main response to the fiscal challenge of the future will need to be higher taxes. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast, in which I've tried to give you a broad idea of what's in my book, Bigger Government. The book itself is a little under 400 pages, so you'll understand that there's a lot that I haven't been able to cover. But I hope the podcast has whet your appetite to read the book itself. Bigger Government, the Future of Government Expenditure in Advanced Economies, is available through all online booksellers in ebook, paperback, and hardcover editions. I'm Mark Robinson, and I want to thank you once again for joining me for this look at the fiscal challenges which face governments in advanced countries over the coming decades.